Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your, your love for us, that you are our Father in heaven. Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you, Lord, that you are awesome in all your ways, that the mountains melt in your presence, that the earth trembles and quakes before you. And I pray that our hearts would also be broken and contrite before you, coming to receive from your hand by your grace. Thank you for all that you have for us in your word today, and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. We want to hear from you. Thank you for allowing us to gather in this place to worship your name and for all the many blessings you have provided and the great plans and future that you have for us. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for healing and restoration. Thank you for the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ to worship and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be in Hosea chapter 9, if you'll turn there. Um, today's passage shows that there's no statute of limitations when it comes to sin, that uh, different countries or states have statute of limitations of how long a time can pass uh, before you can't bring an issue to court anymore, but it's like God takes his people on a little history lesson, revisiting some of the things of their past, so we're going to take that little um, journey with them that there were things that happened in their past that he was reminding them of because it was marking the present and how as children of God, those who've been born again and redeemed and forgiven, we are to seek to please him and to walk in his ways. And uh, unless we're born again and forgiven, the passage of time does nothing to wash us of our sin. We have to be cleansed and that's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and the thought is, do you know what it feels like do you know what it's like to know that you have been forgiven of your sin and that all of your past wrongs have been washed away completely, completely without guilt, without shame? That is a pretty amazing place to be. And that's, where we, that's what we find in Jesus. And I love the picture of uh, Pilgrim in Bunyan's um, allegory where he falls in reverence before the cross and that burden that he had been carrying his whole life just falls off of him and he's free to praise, he's free to thank the Lord and uh, free from guilt and that's what we have through Christ. Uh, we were all like criminals awaiting execution, guilty on death row, but we've received a full pardon through Christ and all of our wrongs have been expunged, not to be brought up again. Um, not because we deserve it, but because God is gracious and loves us. So in Hosea 9, in, we will see that uh, God's people had not been responsive to the things that he had said previously, and so he continued to remind them of their need to repent and turn to him, telling them that judgment was coming. And uh, in times of prosperity, people are not as receptive to that message as when things are difficult or when there's tragedy and, and trouble. And because they departed from the Lord, because of their idolatry, they, they thought because of the blessings that they had that that was the reward of God and the approval of God for their service unto him and all the sacrifices they made. But there's a gap of time between sowing and reaping. And they had been sowing evil for a long time, and they had yet to reap the consequences of it, but that was coming. That's what Hosea was saying. Guys, there's judgment coming. 
It may be prosperous and things may be good now, but there's this, there's this terrible future awaiting you because you've departed from the Lord. And to them, Hosea seemed like a crazy man, like Noah, who for a hundred years plus preached, built this boat on dry land saying, God's going to judge you. He's going to bring judgment with a flood upon the whole world. And uh, very few responded. So may we respond to what God says to us. Hosea 9, verse 1. It says, Do not rejoice, O Israel, with joy like other peoples, for you have played the harlot against your God. You have made love for hire on every threshing floor. The threshing floor and the wine press shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail in her. The threshing floor, the wine press, these were places associated with great rejoicing and celebration because it was uh, the fruitful culmination of a hard year's work. Uh, it was the threshing floor is where it was a flattened area where the ripe grain would be trampled by oxen or they'd pull a sled over it to remove the chaff or the husk from the grain to remove the stalks. They would take the grain and they would t- put it, have a pitchfork and throw it in the air and the, the air would blow away the, the chaff and the stalks and only the good grain would be left. The wine press, that's where the ripe grapes would be trod underfoot with bare feet Uh, So you wouldn't wear shoes because that would cause the bitterness from the skin or from the seeds to taint the flavor. And so they would tread on those grapes and the the grape juice would flow into the vat where it would be collected and made into wine. And it was a time of celebration. It meant in the future there's going to be grain for planting. There's going to be another harvest. It meant bread for eating that your family could be sustained. It meant wine for this next year. And it was kind of like... Um, payday with a hard-earned performance bonus on top of it. It was really a time of celebration. The wine press and the threshing floor also allude to judgment because of the process that takes place, right? Because you've got the threshing and the winnowing of the grain. You have the crushing of the grapes. And they believed they were reaping the rewards for sacrificing to the Baals. And they would have their little images set up. And so as they were uh, receiving this harvest, they were not praising God. They were praising Baal that they had been worshiping and celebrating. And, uh, and so he's like, it's like a hire of a harlot. You've made love to these idols on every threshing floor in your wine presses. So those are going to fail. There's going to be famine in the land. You're going to have a lack You've gone into a a place of business or a restaurant where there's a little shrine or an idol set up, an image with some food in front of it or incense burning. And those are usually set up for good luck or prosperity or protection. And it was like God's saying, you're giving credit to that idol for the things that I've provided you by grace. Because I love you, because I care about you, I've supplied all these things according to my promise. But you have gone from me, and you have sought the help of these other idols, and you're crediting those idols with all you've been given. So what you've been given, it's going to be taken away. It's not going to be satisfying. And this threshing of the grain, the stomping of grapes. It was divine foreshadowing of what would happen to them. They would be threshed from their homes, from their inheritance, from their families. They would be crushed to death. So it was a, it was a strong message that Hosea is bringing. Verse 3, 
They shall not dwell in the Lord's land, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt and eat unclean things in Assyria. They shall not offer wine offerings to the Lord, nor shall their sacrifices be pleasing to him. It shall be like bread of mourners to them. All who eat it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their own life. It shall not come into the house of the Lord. The land that God gave his people was by lot. It was an inheritance that they passed down throughout generations. He made it clear, you guys don't own the land. You're stewards of the land that I've given you. And because they turned from the Lord, they, they would return to Egypt, the place where they had previously been enslaved and in bondage. They would be taken in captivity in Assyria. And they would be, in the last passage, it said, swallowed up and absorbed. It's like they'd be digested within the other nations and uh, lose their identity. Remember when they were in Egypt, Moses came before Pharaoh and he said, we would like to make a sacrifice to our God. So we need to go three days into the wilderness so we can offer that sacrifice. Now to the Egyptians, Pharaoh was a God. He was a deity that was an intermediary between other gods. And he's like, I don't know this God. Like, I'm not going to acknowledge this God. And that gave God the, I'm not going to let the people go. And that gave God an opportunity to prove his superiority over all those idols and all those gods. This return to Egypt, this eating unclean things in Assyria, it was showing the disconnect, not just that would happen someday, but was already there between God and his people. Sacrifices they knew in a foreign land that'd be unacceptable. Bread eaten by mourners, those who had touched an un, like a dead body, that would be unclean and unacceptable. And there was hypocrisy in their worship because they claimed to be making sacrifices to God, but they made sacrifices in a way and in places that were not approved by God because they thought, hey, we'll just, we'll sacrifice to God on these high places. We don't have to go to the the temple in Jerusalem, according to God's command. It's kind of like a cook who washes his hands with soap, but then accidentally drops the meat on the ground and just dusts it off and serves it anyway. Be like, oh. So that they were thinking, but we're clean. We washed our hands. He's like, but look, this is an unclean thing you're giving me. I can't accept that. I will not accept that. It would have no spiritual benefit for them to sacrifice to the Lord without obedience. It would be better for them just to eat their bread and sustain their bodies for a day than to present it to God in hypocrisy. Verse 5, what will you do in the appointed day and in the day of the feast of the Lord? For indeed, they are gone because of destruction. Egypt shall gather them up. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their valuables of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. Israel had not honored God during the appointed feast days according to his word, and so they'd be denied the opportunity to honor him during the feast days. And we'll see this whole passage is quite rich with irony or poetic justice, where they, this returning to Egypt, the place where they begged God, God, save us, let us out of here. Now they're going to return, and they'll do it on their own. They will decide to go back to Egypt to try to avoid famine and the sword and the pestilence, but that was what was going to find them there. Now, one of my favorite examples of poetic justice in the Bible has to be with Haman uh, in the book of Esther. 
He was proud and it led to his fall. He was uh, an ambitious man who was promoted by the king to the point where if he walked down the street and someone saw him, you were supposed to bow before him. But there was one man who didn't bow. And he noticed that one man, Mordecai. Then he discovered the reason why Mordecai didn't bow is because he was a Jew. And so he put it on himself to eradicate, to exterminate all the Jews in the Mede-Persian Empire. So he gets the king's signet ring and he makes a law that the Jews should be destroyed. And over the passage of time, he's quite impatient because Mordecai's still out there and he's still not bowing. And so he builds this massive gallows in his front yard. And he goes into the king and he's like, I'm going to ask if I can hang Mordecai because, uh, you know, that future extermination date, it's just too far away. And And before he can speak, the king says, hey, what should be done to the man the king delights to honor? And he thinks to himself, who would the king want to honor more than me? This guy's classic. So he, he, he's, he's like, well, what would I like? Yeah, I, I think the man that the king delights to honor, he should wear the royal clothes. He should ride on a horse that the king's ridden on. He should have a noble walk before him and shout, parading him around. This is what happens to the man the king delights to honor. And the king's like, that sounds awesome. Do everything exactly what you said for Mordecai. And you get to be the one who parades him around. And he was just devastated by this. It come to find out the next day, his whole plot is brought into the light that he had planned to kill the Jews because Esther was secretly a Jew and he is hung on his own gallows in his own front yard. So it's like, wow, that, that is a perfect example. But this is what was happening where God's like, you, you cried to me to get out of Egypt, but you're going to on your own choose to go back and it's going to be bad for you. This theme of reaping evil when evil has been sown, it's thick throughout the passage. During the Exodus, what did they say as they were in the, the wilderness being led by the Spirit of God? They said, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've led us out here to die? And he says, well, you're going to be buried in Memphis, which was a key city in Egypt. That is where your burial will be, in Memphis, not in your father's land. The valuables that they had worked to acquire that God had given them, they'd be left to nettles. They would be, in their little hidey holes would get covered over with grass and they wouldn't have them anymore. Because they traded the worship of God for idols, poverty that they, they hoped to avoid through sacrificing to idols, that would overtake them. They would lose everything. In their greed for gain, they would lose everything that they had. Verse 7. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come. Israel knows the prophet is a fool. The spiritual man is insane because of the greatness of your iniquity and great enmity. The watchman of Ephraim is with my God, but the prophet is a fowler's snare in all his ways. Enmity in the house of his God. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. This day's, the day of punishment or reckoning had come before a holy and just God. This recompense, it's retribution, payback, experienced by individuals and nations alike. 
Um, God shows mercy to those that fear him. He provides a way of escape for them. We see that throughout scripture. When a cry came up from Sodom because of the great sin in that city and the surrounding ones, uh, before he destroyed it, he sent messengers who literally took righteous Lot by the hand while he was tarrying, took him by the hand, and they led him out from that place. In Hosea's day, God gave space to repent for his people. They could go to Jerusalem and be safe there and avoid the idolatry of the northern kingdom. Even Judah, before they fell, they had a chance to repent. And if they trusted God and heeded the words of the prophets, he says, if you go to the Babylonians and you defect to them, you will spare your lives. But we see, history shows us when that choice is presented before people, most people disregard God's way. They don't trust it. Uh, when it came to, the only way you're going to live is go to the Babylonians, this, these people who are notorious for their brutality. They're like, no way. We're not going there. But that was what God said. So that was the way that he provided for them. Verse 7, it says, Israel knows. It's a little tongue-in-cheek here. It's like, oh, they just know everything. They're so smart. Um, the first is they refused to listen to the prophets like Hosea, thinking he was insane to prophesy judgment in a time of prosperity. The second is the deception spread by the false prophets. It's like they loved that message, that message of peace and prosperity and wealth, and they denied the, the righteous prophet, but they heaped up those false prophets to themselves. And that attractive message, those smooth words, it was a snare to them. It caught them. Verse 9, that's the first of three historical mentions that we're going to go through today and explore. Um, and he says their corruption is in the days of Gibeah. Now the first mention of Gibeah, that's a city of Benjamin, it concerns that infamous case in Judges 19 with the Levite and his concubine. The man's concubine had played the harlot. He went to retrieve her. And he decided on his return home that they were only going to stay in Hebrew cities. They weren't going to stay in any of the pagan or the heathen culture around them. And so they ended up staying in Gebeah. And they had planned on spending the night in the open square because no one took them in. But this old farmer, he sees them. He says, hey, come with me. Do not spend the night out here in the open square. And they're like, oh, that's fine. No, no, really, come home with me. So they come home with him. And it says that that night, just a horrible situation. There's these bisexual men that came to the door and said, bring out that man that we can sleep with him. And it ended up that they took his, his concubine, they raped her and murdered her. So what the, what the man did is he took the concubine's corpse home, he divided her into pieces, and he sent body parts throughout all the nation to the 12 tribes and says, look at what has happened here. The whole nation is outraged at what has happened. And they decide as one, we are going to take vengeance upon those people that committed this atrocity. This is not to happen in Israel. And the people of Benjamin, they said, no, you're not just going to defeat our people like that. And so there was this civil war that happened for a period of time. They all united to stamp out the obvious wickedness that was among them. And that's exactly what God was doing. He says, you guys, you look back upon that infamous time with disgust and horror. That's what I see when I see you today. 
Just like it was corrupted back then and you hate it, I'm looking upon you now and it's hateful. It's awful the things I'm seeing. Wasn't he right to take action as they had? They, they saw the need to take action. He says, I'm taking action. I'm taking action because of what's happened. Sin always looks worse on others. It always looks worse back then. But it was present, and God was calling them out for it. Verse 10, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as first fruits on the fig tree in its first season. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves to that shame. They became an abomination like the thing they loved. As for Ephraim, their glory shall fly away like a bird. No birth, no pregnancy, and no conception. Though they bring up their children, yet I will bereave them to the last man. Yes, woe to them when I depart from them. Just as I saw Ephraim like Tyre planted in a pleasant place, so Ephraim will bring out his children to the murderer. Give them, O Lord. What will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. If you were hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, you would be happy to find fresh, edible, ripe fruit. Right? That energy source that uh, if you've ever been thirsty or hungry and you could just smell the food, like after a fast, have you ever noticed that? You just smell the food and you're like, wow, I'm really hungry. And uh, when you planted a tree and you've watered it and you've tilled it and cultivated it, it's quite natural that when you see those buds bursting forth on it, you're excited. And then you you walk by it every couple days, you take a look, is there anything growing? Do we have any fruit here? Because and there's a bit of hope that you're going to be partaker of that fruit in the future. That's the joy that God had when he looked upon his people. He said, these are the first fruits of my grace. These are the people that I've delivered from bondage, that I've saved, that I've called my own. I will be their God and they will be my people. When the children of Israel went and spied out the land, what did they bring back? They brought back a grapes that were a, a bunch of grapes that was so large, they put it on a stick between two people to say, this is how fruitful the land is. I mean, they're like carrying it between two men. And he says, that, I was ooing and aahing with delight over this delicious first fruit filled with sweetness, but they did not deliver on their potential. He says, how is this vine that... I planted in a good place in the right soil. It's become degenerate. It's, it's bitter. It's not at all like what I planted. He says they went to Baal Peor. Now Baal, that was the deity worshipped in the Moabite region of Peor. And the word Baal, interestingly, means husband. Nine times the word husband in the Old Testament. If you look in the Hebrew, it's Baal. So you read the word husband, but so not every time it says husband is it Baal, but that is some of the time it's that. Or Lord or owner. The worship Baal, it involved fertility rites with sexual activity. The prophet of Moab, Balaam, do you remember him? He had been called by the king of Moab to curse God's people. And he says, well, I can only say what God tells me to say. But they were going to pay him well if he cursed them. He didn't curse them. But what he did do is he, he gave the Moabites understanding of what behavior would be a curse to them. And so he, he said, you know, get them following after your gods. Get them sexually involved with these ladies of Moab, and it'll be a curse. It'll be a snare to them. 
We read in Numbers 25, verse 1 through 4, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods. The people bowed and ate um, before their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So the eating, the feasting, they were just invited to a party that involved bowing down before these images, eating, and having sex. That was part of the deal. In clear violation of the covenant, and it says in another place that 23,000 fell because of a plague sent out from the Lord. Those rulers who uh, were involved with this practice, they were hung as a public display. So this was scandalous. And it's recorded, if you want to turn there, to Psalm 106, which, which is a great chapter that goes into great detail about all of their wanderings and rebellions from the Lord. So Psalm 106, 24 through 29, and this is the portion of it speaking of this infamous occasion with Baal Peor. Psalm 106, 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. They did not believe his word, but complained in their tents and did not heed the voice of the Lord. Therefore, he raised up his hand in an oath against them to overthrow them in the wilderness, to overthrow their descendants among the nations and to scatter them in the lands. They joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. Thus, they provoked him to anger with their deeds and the plague broke out among them. What's really compelling about this passage is it explains what happened behind the scenes. What led to them, so before they joined themselves to the idol, there was a departure from God. And notice it says here, they did not, they despised the land, number one. Number two, they did not believe his word. They didn't believe what God said. And then they complained. They complained in their tents. So they were not satisfied with what God had provided. They did not heed the voice of the Lord, so they didn't listen to him. They didn't obey. And then they joined themselves to the image. Their father's sacrifice to that Moabite deity in the hope of increased fertility and better crops, and they were doing the exact same thing in Hosea's day. And so they joined themselves to what was abominable and became abominable themselves. Their glory, the Bible says, would fly away. God would see they would have no birth, no pregnancy, no conception. He would bereave them. Seeing that coming judgment, Hosea said, Give them, O Lord, what will you give? Give them a miscarrying womb and dry breasts. Now, David Guzik, in his commentary, he says this, Really, Hosea prayed for mercy. Knowing the coming judgment, he prayed, Lord, give them few children so those children will not have to face the horrors of your coming judgment. A miscarrying womb, that's a tragedy for all parents who rejoice to have a little one, to welcome that child into the world. Hosea's prayer is to spare innocent children. They joined themselves to Baal for increased fertility, so Hosea prayed the opposite. He says, Lord, don't give them what they're going for in seeking after these false gods. Back to Hosea 9, verse 15. 
All their wickedness is in Gilgal, for there I hated them. Because of the evil of their deeds, I will drive them from my house. I will love them no more. All their princes are rebellious. Ephraim is stricken. Their root is dried up. They shall bear no fruit. Yes, were they to bear children, I would kill the darlings of their womb. My God will cast them away because they did not obey him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. The third place God hones in on is Gilgal. It's a place with a rich history. The name means circle of stones because that's the place where they had crossed over the Jordan uh, and the, the waters parted. And they took from the Jordan 12 stones, one for each tribe, and they set them up in a circle as a memorial for how God had miraculously brought them through and into the promised land. And that was the place that all the males were circumcised because those who were in Egypt and those born in the wilderness had not been circumcised. And it was a renewal of the covenant with God. It's also on the border of Jericho where God provided this great victory. So these are all good things. These are all good associations with Gilgal. But then it starts to have some bad connotations because that's the place where Saul was anointed king after the people rejected God as being their king. They said, God, we don't want you to be our king anymore. We want a king like all the other nations. We want a man to lead us in, lead us out, to fight our battles for us, as if God hadn't done a good job up till then. But he's like, give the people what they're asking for. And so that's where Saul was anointed king. It's also the place where Saul sinned by uh, offering an, an illicit offering. He was not to uh, make an offering to the Lord as king. That was for the prophet or the priest to do because Samuel was judge at that time. And he said, wait seven days. But when Saul saw the enemy gathering, he says, I just had to. I was afraid people were leaving. So he transgressed by offering a sacrifice he never should have offered. It's also the place where they were, to, they were commanded to destroy the Amalekites and to destroy all the spoils. But they took of those spoils under the pretense of giving them to God. And they said, oh, this is for a sacrifice to God. So we'll disobey so we can offer sacrifices, knowing full well that they would be partakers of those sacrifices. So, Amos 4.4 He's a contemporary of Hosea. It says, come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. So that was a place, Gilgal, where they were offering these sacrifices to God in the place where they should not have, in violation of his command. It was a place of blatant hypocrisy because it was disobedience to God coupled with sacrifice for God, allegedly, and God would have none of that. It says that he would drive them out for their sins. He would love them no more. Now, uh, this is interesting because we know that God loves people, right? So what does this mean? Well, the same verb is used uh, in Deuteronomy 22.13 for the word hate, that if a man went into a maid uh, and he hated her, he found some uncleanness. So it's that same word. Uh, he finds out that she's not a virgin, that there was an undisclosed issue, and he had paid the bride price. He could go to the elders and say, look, I, I was led to believe this woman was a virgin. She's not. And so I'd like to have this marriage annulled and receive the dowry back so I can have another wife. That was under the law. Now, 
the princes of, e, uh, of uh, Israel, they wouldn't suffer their wives to play the harlot. And God would not suffer the princes of Israel to play the harlot as well. So he would call them out for it. Just this week, during family devotions, we read of when David brought the Ark of God into Jerusalem and how it was a great celebration when he, when he did it the second time and it was acceptable. Um, and it says that as they brought the Ark in, the trumpets are going, the people are rejoicing, and David, he is just whirling and twirling before the Lord, and he's just so ecstatic that the Ark of God, the presence of God is coming into the place where he had put his name. It's just a culmination of him being established as king. Now God is in his rightful place, and he is overjoyed. Well, Michal, his wife, it says she looks at him down there, very uh, disgusted by how unregal he was. She was the daughter of the previous king of Israel, King Saul. And so he arrives home, and they've just had this feast, and they've given gifts to everybody, and it's a day of celebration. And she th- tries to throw a big wet blanket over him, goes with some sarcasm. Whoa, how dignified you the king was today, uncovering himself like the base men who take off their shirts to impress the ladies. And this is what he said in 2 Samuel 6, 21. It says, so David said to me, call, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken, by them I will be held in honor. Therefore, me call the daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. So, Michal hated David in her heart, so he no longer slept with her. And there's a similar ring to what's happening here in Hosea. They had chosen Baal to be their husband. They had played the harlot with this other god. So he's like, I'm not going to be intimate with you anymore. When he said, I'm not going to love you anymore. You're not going to be fruitful because of me anymore, because you've departed from me. You've walked away from me. And you would justify if someone had hated you and left you, that you would no longer be intimate with them because they have rejected you completely. And so that's what's happening here. He says, I will love them no more. I will drive them away. Now, they were welcome to repent and return to him, but they were not interested to do that at this point. Verse 17, it says, My God will cast them away because they did not obey him, and they shall be wanderers among the nations. God's people strayed, so he allowed them to wander. This word wanderer is the same used concerning Cain, the curse that was put on Cain for killing his brother Abel. For for his sin, he would be punished with poor harvests and be a vagabond and wanderer among the nations. Isn't wandering a fit description of many people who refuse to heed God and his word? Just wandering, going from one thing to another. Not established, not at peace or at rest, but seeking something to satisfy them and they have been unable to find that. Everything has disappointed them. I've witnessed this many times where someone's wandered from the truth of God's word in doctrine. It's that first innocuous step towards a divorce or towards quitting ministry altogether. Unconfessed sin, it can lead to alcohol use and abuse. Um, Fruitless years in a wilderness because of your wandering from the Lord and trying to cover up 
that guilt inside. Departure from God, it leads to dryness, to deadness, to wandering, being empty. And praise the Lord, he revives and restores when we repent and we return to him. Could you please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 11. The context of this passage is Paul had been warning the church in Corinth of the, depart, the danger of departing from God. And he had written this letter to correct some of the excesses and sins in that particular congregation where a man had, had, was having sexual relations with his mother. And in, under the name of grace, they were allowing this to happen. He says, this wouldn't even be named among the Gentiles and it's being named among you. So you need to deal with this sin. It is a sin and it must be dealt with. And he, Paul then begins to bring up these examples of things that had happened in Israel's past. So they could say, you know, just because we're God's people, it doesn't mean we're inoculated against judgment. We will be judged for our sins. There is a, there is a consequence when we walk from the Lord, when we choose other lovers instead of him. So he talks about, Hey, remember when God judged people for idolatry or when they tempted God or they murmured against God. And he even speaks of the Baal Peor incident in verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now that should really grab your attention. Like, wow. All right, that's pretty serious. Now verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 10. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So idolatry is not just a problem in the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament, in Corinth. And instead of relegating the Old Testament to some, just a historical account, it's, he's saying it's filled with relevant examples for us today. He says this to the church. These are examples written down for us so we can be admonished, so we can be corrected, so we can lay these things to heart. And he says, no one among you is facing a unique case of temptation. You guys ever felt like you're the only one who's tempted in a particular way or who struggles with something? I mean, everyone else seems to have things together, but you have this area or areas where it's almost like a chronic struggle. And we might feel like sin's got us cornered and there's really no way of escape. Like the only way to deal with sin is to give in to it. And like the resistance is, you know, resistance is futile type thing. Like, okay, resistance, the best way to just get over it is to be done with it and then move on. But see, you're not moving on, right? That's, that's a lie that you can feed to the flesh and not be sowing corruption in your life. With, see that, it says, with every temptation will also make the way of escape. So there is a way, the way of escape in every temptation that you face. It's like God has a custom exit door for any time 
where there is a temptation in our life, there is a way to not sin. There is a way to avoid it. Now, we don't always take that way, but it's there. We can't blame God like, God, you give me no choice. No, there is a way of escape. And if you say, this is not true in my situation, you're saying basically three things, that you're denying God's faithfulness because it's on the basis of his faithfulness that that way of escape is provided. And you're denying the truth of his word because he has said that for us. And you see the way of escape he's provided as useless or insufficient. And guess who that way is? It's not what way, it's really a who. The way, Jesus Christ. He is the way of escape. He's the way because he always leads us in righteousness. And if we're following him, he's going to lead us out of the temptation and into that place of victory and growth and maturity that he desires for all of us. All of us has a season as in the days of Gebeah. All of us have incidences like a series, perhaps, of the Baal Peor incident. And we all have had Gilgals where we said, Lord, I want to be in charge. I don't want you to be ruling over this area of my life or my life at all. And to think that sacrifice negates our need to obey. But he says to obey is better than sacrifice. We all deserve to be punished and destroyed for our sin. Yet because of his faithfulness, we are not doomed to wander We're not doomed to destruction or to remain in bondage because he supplied the Lord Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And we come to the Father through him. The children of Israel, as they went through the wilderness for 40 years, were supplied manna on a daily basis that they gathered up for themselves to eat. And God has done something greater. I mean, wouldn't you guys want to eat manna if you... I mean, it's kind of a weird thing to like go gather up your food in the morning off the ground before the sun gets too hot. Just for the novelty. I'm not saying that this is all we'd eat, but I'd be like, that's pretty cool to witness that miracle, to partake of it and go, wow, this is real. You know, God, he, he just can do anything. I don't need to be afraid of, of starving because he's going to supply for me, just like he did um, Elijah the prophet. God has sent Jesus Christ as the living bread from heaven. And he says, whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, that picture of receiving him through faith, we were were aliens from the commonwealth of God, but we can become children of God, become adopted, reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. That we are now, we can call God our father. And that is the truth. And he will endure long before, long, long after our earthly father's have gone the way of the earth. Could you please turn to John chapter 6, starting in verse 47. We'll read where Jesus talks about being the bread of life. John chapter 6, starting in verse 47. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give 
for the life of the world. It's in receiving Christ through faith. We are born again. We're forgiven. We're made righteous. And Jesus has been provided as our means of escape from condemnation and hell. He is the door through whom we enter to have fellowship with God and to receive eternal life and the abundant life, not just in the days to come, but right now, that we don't need to be living in Gebeah or Gilgal. And though we have that in our past, God will not bring it up again when we return to him. But God forbid that we should come to Christ and our life be like it was, where we're in Gilgal and we're in Gebeah and there's that corruption there. Let's confess that. Let's come to him for cleansing and healing, for wholeness. Last verse, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. if you'll turn there. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. So this is following on the next chapter. Um, Paul instructing them to receive the Lord's Supper as we are going to do today. It's a, uh, we are invited, we are compelled by the love of God, we are strongly exhorted and encouraged to partake of the Lord's Supper because it proclaims the Lord's death till he comes. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. None of us are worthy to partake of Christ. It's received by his grace. And it would be silly for us to think by our efforts or our gifts um, or by our sacrifice that we could be partakers of him. We receive him by grace through faith. The bread and the cup, it symbolizes the payment that Jesus has made. His body was broken. His blood was shed so that we could be cleansed, so we could be made new. It's nothing that we've earned. We receive it by grace. And we don't, I always thought as a kid, I'm like, man, this is so small. Like, this is like nothing. I, I, when I, it, does anybody, when you pour a glass of water because you're thirsty, you, you have these little cups at your house? You use these little tiny cups, you just break a cracker into four pieces and eat one? Like, I'm like, this is like so small. But see, we don't eat this because we're hungry or thirsty. We eat because we are satisfied in Christ alone. He's the one in whom we have life and satisfaction. We do so in obedience because we're proclaiming the love that Jesus demonstrated when he died for us while we were sinners, cut off from God. And having been washed from sin, we aim to live in the way that pleases God. Jesus made a covenant in his own blood. So we eat and drink because we're in agreement with him. He is our God. 
We are his people. He is our king and our master, and we love him. He died for us, and so we receive of him, and we walk in him, and he in us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you know everything about us. You know our Gilgals, our Gebeahs, the Baal Peor incidents, and yet you give us the opportunity for forgiveness and salvation, for redemption, for hope beyond ourselves that you give us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank you for the new covenant in his blood that's greater than that of law. Thank you for the new heart that he's given us when we're born again and filled with the Holy Spirit through the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we are partakers of your heavenly kingdom and that we can be your ambassadors and glorify you even now. Thank you for the abundant life you've provided by grace. And Lord, we desire to, uh, to repent of our sin and to turn to you, that we would not go aside after idols. We would not um, return to Egypt. We would not um, be filled with uncleanness. Lord, wash us clean, make us new, and cause us to delight in you. Lord, thank you that you have put our sins as far as the east is from the west, that there's no measurement, that you have put them um, where they will never be remembered, for you said, I will remember their sin no more. Thank you, Lord, that we can be free from the guilt and shame, and if we bring that guilt and shame before you even now, you will cleanse, you will heal, you will restore. So, Lord, restore, I pray in Jesus' name. And be glorified as we partake in remembrance of you in Jesus' name. Amen.